This is the Moira Pentecostal Church podcast, providing you with sound biblical teaching. New content will be available every week throughout 2015. We hope you will be encouraged, challenged, and blessed by this ministry. I'll give you a scripture reference uh, just in a moment or two, but uh, I want to begin this service. Title this morning is simply, You Can Make a Difference. Never underestimate the fact that you can make a difference in life, in your life, in the life of others. In every field of human endeavor that I know of, there's always been somebody who's made a difference. Henry Ford was the one who brought the motor car to the masses. Orville and Wright were the ones who flew over Kitty Hawk, and because of that was the the beginning of the journey to commercial flying that we all enjoy. Louis Pasteur uh, was the one who who discovered, as it were, uh, pasteurization. And thank God for that every time you drink a bottle of milk. And of course, uh, Sir James Simpson, who discovered chloroform and Henri Dunant, that Swiss man who uh, began the Red Cross that is to this very day that's saving hundreds of thousands, if not millions of people uh, over the world. And so in every field of endeavor, whether it's medicine or the sciences or the arts or literature or broadcasting, somebody somewhere made a difference that has blessed the world. The Bible is full of people Likewise, who made a difference in their generation. Hebrews chapter 11 lists 16 individuals and implies countless others who made a difference. So you too can make a difference. Whoever you are, wherever you are, you can make a difference. You can make a difference in your school, whether it's the classroom or whether it's the staff room. You can make a difference in your home, whether you're a parent or a child. You can make a difference in your job, whether you're the employer or the employee. You can make a difference in your church, whether you're in a leadership position or whether you're not. You can still make a difference. And almost every great enterprise that's been undertaken in the kingdom of God began with one person and a vision. I cannot think of any missionary organization in the world today that didn't begin with one person and a vision. I could be wrong on this, but I can't even think of any humanitarian organization around the world that didn't begin with one person and a dream. Somebody was a catalyst. Somebody was a touchstone. Somebody stepped out of the shadows. Somebody stood up and did something and they made a difference in their generation. So what do you have today that can make a difference? How can you make a difference today? Well, let me begin by saying you can make a difference by your prayers. You do not need talent You don't need any special gifting. You don't need any 
cleverness. You, as an ordinary, simple person, can make a massive difference by your prayers. I want to give you this morning two examples of two people in the Bible whose prayers made a massive difference more than you think. One a woman, one a man. One in the Old Testament, one in the New Testament. And as we take a few moments to examine their lives, I want you to think a little bit. These are two people who made a difference in their generation. And at the end of the message, I may do more than that, but at the end of the message, uh, I want to play you something. Not show you on the screen, but play you something. It lasts about eight to ten minutes. And you will be amazed when you hear it, the difference that one person made in their lifetime. Uh, first of all, come with me please to ninth book of the Old Testament, the book of 1 Samuel. And chapter 1. And this is the story, of course, of Hannah, amazing woman, and uh, accomplished so much through her prayers. And there was a certain man of Ramathaim, Zophim, of the mountains of Ephraim. His name was Elkanah, the son of Jeroram, the son of Elihu, the son of Tohu, the son of Zulf, an Ephraimite. And he had two wives. The name of the one was Hannah, the name of the other Penina. And Penina had children, but Hannah had no children. And this man went up from his city yearly to worship and sacrifice to the Lord of hosts in Shiloh. Also the two sons of Eli, Hophni and Phinehas, the priests of the Lord, were there. Whenever the time came from Elkanah to make an offering, he would give portions to Penina, his wife, and to all her sons and daughters. But to Hannah he would give a double portion, for he loved Hannah, although the Lord had closed her womb. And her rival, that's Penina, her rival also provoked her severely to make her miserable, because the Lord had closed her womb. And so it was year by year, when she went up to the house of the Lord, that she provoked her, therefore she wept and did not eat. Let's just pause a moment there. Uh, Elkanah and Hannah were two godly people. Uh, they were devout. They would go every year to the feast at the tabernacle of Shiloh. They would never miss. Uh, they were a praying couple. They were a good couple. Loved the Lord. But as you can see, Hannah was barren. The Lord had closed her womb. And to make matters worse, because in those days that was a great stigma. The implication was that God somehow is punishing you. And so having to deal with all of that, and on top of all of that, Penina, Elkanah's other wife, gave her such grief. She took every opportunity to down her. And particularly,
particularly when they would go to the feast, which generally would be a, a, a great event, a great time for the whole family to be together as a family, and the work would be laid aside, and it would kind of be a feast and a holiday. It would be a wonderful time. But for Hannah, it got to the stage where she dreaded going to the feast because she knew that Penina was going to mock her and was going to put her down and was going to do everything in her power to make her miserable, and she was miserable. She was that miserable. She got to the stage where she couldn't even eat. She had totally lost her appetite, and she got to the place where even though... She had to go and, and wanted to go, but yet she knew that every time she would go, it would just be trouble upon trouble. And so verse 8, Then Elkanah, her husband, said to her, Hannah, why do you weep? Why do you not eat? And why is your heart grieved? Am I not better to you than ten sons? Now, there's two ways you can take that. You can take that, it was quite insensitive. Or you can take it that he truly, and he did, the Bible says, he truly loved her. And that he wasn't in any way uh, trying to hurt her. In fact, he was more or less saying, look, I know you can't have children, but I love you just to see him. It makes no difference to me. Uh, you know, you're, you're my wife. I love you dearly. And, you know, and, and am I not good to you? Am I not better than ten sons? Well, of course, Purana, she loved Elkanah, but she, she wanted a son anyway. And so Hannah rose after they had finished eating and drinking in Shiloh. Now, Eli the priest was sitting on the seat by the doorpost of the tabernacle of the Lord. And she was in bitterness of soul and prayed to the Lord and wept in anguish. Then she made a vow and said, O Lord of hosts, if you will indeed look on the affliction of your maidservant and remember me and not forget your maidservant, but will give your maidservant a male child, then I will give him to the Lord all the days of his life and no razor shall come upon his head. Now you can read that and you can say, well, that, that's a nice prayer. It's, it's, it's lovely. Actually, it's a profound prayer. It's an amazing prayer. It's one of the most unselfish prayers you'll find in all of Scripture. Did you hear what she said? She said, Lord, if you give me a child, I will give this child to you all the days of his life. He will become a Nazarite. That means he will be completely and utterly dedicated unto you. Now, for those who would take Nazarite vows, generally they would wait till they're at least 30 years old and beyond. And generally it would be for a, a stipulated period of time. And to take a Nazarite vow would mean that uh, you'd be very pious, you're going to spend the next year, two years, three years, whatever it may be, dedicated to the Lord. No razor would come upon your head. That would be the sign of the Nazarite. Uh, plus, you would not be able to touch any dead bodies. You wouldn't defile yourself. Uh, you know, so there's, there's all kinds of implications here. But she said, Lord, from the moment he's born, he'll be a Nazarite unto you. And that shows us something about the heart of this woman. She wasn't just wanting this child for a selfish reason, just to get at her rival, just to say, ah, see. No. She wasn't just wanting a child just for the normal reasons any mother and father would want a child. She wanted a child 
specifically to give unto the Lord. And that's what makes her prayer a very special prayer indeed. Now, that's not for everybody, although we dedicate our children unto the Lord, but to make them Nazarites, to make a vow for them before they're even born, that's, that's a big ask, isn't it? But she did it. And so she made this tremendous prayer that would have great implications and ramifications, not only for her, but for the whole nation. And it happened as she continued praying before the Lord that Eli watched her mouth. Now Hannah spoke in her heart, but only her lips moved, for her voice was not heard. I read an interesting little thing this week regarding that by a rabbi, a rabbi called Tolushkin. He's written a number of books. One is Biblical Literacy. And I didn't know this. And he said, just regarding this Hannah's prayer, uh, he talks about the Talmud notes many important rulings on how to pray that are based on the description of Hannah's prayer. From Hannah we learn that the, the Amidah, the prayer that remains the centerpiece of the three times daily Jewish prayer service, should be recited quietly but with moving lips. So here, more than two and a half thousand years later, that very act of Hannah is even today still done in prayer services, even in synagogues. And based on Eli's comment that Hannah should not pray if she is drunk, Jewish law rules that a drunk person is forbidden to recite the Amidah. <laughs> so her prayers, even to this day, uh, even has an effect. And so Hannah spoke in her heart, but only her lips moved. Therefore Eli thought she was drunk. So Eli, Eli said to her, How long will you be drunk? Put your wine away from you. But Hannah answered and said, No, my Lord, I am a woman of sorrowful spirit. I have drunk neither wine nor intoxicating drink, but I have poured out my soul before the Lord. Do not consider your maidservant a wicked woman, for out of the abundance of my complaint and grief I have spoken until now. So this prayer that was not verbalized, this prayer that was internalized, where only her lips moved slightly. And let me encourage you. It's good to verbalize your prayers. It's good to pray out loud. That's good. But God hears even the internal prayers. And even though this woman was praying in anguish, and even though there was no words coming over her lips, that God heard the prayer of her heart. And it's a heartfelt prayer that God hears the most. We could pray out loud all day long, and it mightn't go above the ceiling. But out of a heartfelt prayer, that's what God hears. Then Enoch answered and said, Go in peace, and the God of Israel grant your petition would you have asked of him? He didn't even know what she'd ask. I think he felt quite embarrassed that he had misunderstood her intentions. She said, go in peace. 
Oh, by the way, may the Lord grant you that request. And the Lord did. She said, let your maidservant find favor in your sight. So the woman went her way and ate. Now note this. And her face was no longer sad. For the first time in years, she felt she had got a breakthrough. She had no evidence. She was not pregnant. There was no sign of a child. But in her heart, she felt, God has heard my prayer. And God will answer my prayer. And something broke at that moment. Something was released in her spirit. And she knew that God heard and God was going to answer. And her face lit up. That must have been a shock to Penina to see Hannah smiling. She must have wondered, what in the world is she smiling about? (laughs) And it must have been a joy to Elkanah to see Hannah at last happy again. Even though there was no outward evidence, but inside she felt, God is going to answer my prayer. Never underestimate the power of your prayers. Never underestimate how God may answer your prayer, though it may seem impossible, though it may have been long you have been praying. But never underestimate the power of your prayer. Then they rose early in the morning and worshipped before the Lord, and they returned and came to the house at Ramah. And Elkanah knew Hannah, his wife, and the Lord remembered her. And so it came to pass in the process of time that Hannah conceived and bore a son and called his name Samuel, saying, Because I have asked him from the Lord. Now the man Elkanah and all his house went up to offer to the Lord the yearly sacrifice and his vow. But Hannah did not go up, for she said to her husband, Not until the child is weaned, then I will take him, that he may appear before the Lord and remain there forever. What a sacrifice. What a thing to do. She made a vow, and she's going to pay a vow. No matter how it may hurt her, No matter how much she may miss her boy, she's promised God, and she's going to keep that promise. Now, the winning process would take up to probably three years, two and a half, three years. And that's all she would have of him. From then on, she'd only see him once a year. So this is a big sacrifice that she's making for the Lord but she made the promise before the child was even born and so the woman stayed uh, sorry Elkanah said to her husband sorry Elkanah her husband said to her do what seems best to you wait until you have weaned him only let the Lord establish his word So that tells us that Elkanah was in total agreement with this. There's other scriptures we haven't time to go into but shows that, but this godly man is in total agreement with what his wife is doing. He could have nullified that according to Numbers. He could overrode that promise, but he didn't. He was in full compliance. 
So Elkanah said to her husband, said to her, Do what seems best to you. Wait until you wean him. Only let the Lord establish his word. Then the woman stayed and nursed her son until she had weaned him. Now when she had weaned him, she took him up with her, took, took him up with her with three bulls, one ephah of flour, a skin of wine, and brought him to the house of the Lord in Shiloh. And the child was young. Then they slaughtered a bull and brought the child to Eli. And she said, O my Lord, as your soul lives, my Lord, and the woman who stood by you here praying to the Lord. For this child I prayed, and the Lord has granted me my petition, which I asked of him. Therefore I have lent him to the Lord. As long as he lives, he shall be lent to the Lord. And so they worshiped the Lord there. Now, to show you how much of a sacrifice this was to Hannah, you've got to consider Eli and his two sons. Eli was an old, old man. And he had been a good man, but he had been a weak man and a soft man. Because his two sons, who were now priests, were rascals. Uh, they, they defrauded people. They, they were stealing part of the offerings of the people that came. They were actually, they were, they were sleeping with the woman who came to the, to the tabernacle, at the tabernacle door. These were desperate, terrible men. And at one point, when the people said to Eli about them, he took them aside and he scolded them, but he did nothing with them. To the point where God removed him and the two sons completely. So consider for a moment Hannah knowing all of this, knowing what's going on at the tabernacle, knowing about the priest and Hophni and Phinehas and all of that. It was the talk of the whole year. Knowing all of that, she still is prepared to give her son to Eli to rear in the house of the Lord. That took a bit of courage, didn't it? But it took a bit of trust in God, didn't it? She had made her vow, and she's going to pay her vow. But God, who answered her prayer, she felt was well capable and well able to take care of her son. Because he was born for purpose. He was born for purpose. And so she gives him into the hands of Eli. And interestingly... Eli did bring him up in the house of the Lord and did a very, very good job of it. <laughs> in spite of the fact he couldn't bring his own sons up. But he did a good job uh, with young Samuel. Now here's the interesting thing. Samuel was given to Hannah. God honored her prayers and gave her a male child. But not just any male child one with a special calling. You have to understand, you see, at the time Samuel was born was the time of the judges. This was a 450-year period in Israel's history that was very dark, that was very troublesome. Uh, you see, the children of Israel had, had conquered Cana, but they didn't control Cana. What I mean by that is, even though they had conquered the land and carved up the land, but their enemies were still in the land, and in fact, many times was overcoming them in the land. 
So they, they weren't controlling the Philistines or the Jebusites or, or any of the rest of them. In fact, many times it was them controlling them. And, and they, would, <laughs> they would start to worship their idols and, and come under their domination. And that would go on for years, sometimes for decades, until they were sick, sore, and tired of the oppression. They would cry unto God, and God would raise up a man or raise up a woman like Samson or Deborah, whoever. So many of the judges had raised them up to deliver them from the hand of their enemy. And then there would be a period of peace and prosperity. And then, lo and behold, they would go backslide again and come under the domination and the, the idolatry of those around them, the nations around them. And that would go on for years. And then they would cry again, and God delivered them again. That was the scene for 450 years. That's what it was like when Samuel was born. And God was going to raise up a man in the midst of all of that who would transition the nation at a very important time in their history. And so Samuel was born. He was brought up in the temple. He grew in favor with God. He grew in favor with God and man. You remember his little boy, God gave him that, came and spoke to him in the middle of the night. And to be fair to Eli, Eli realized what was happening and, and said, you know, listen and say, Lord, speak for your servant hears. And God gave him a message that all the ears of Israel would tingle at, and he had to go and speak to Eli. Another prophet of God had come to Eli and told him because of his situation that God was going to remove his sons and going to remove him, and the priesthood would end, and that's what exactly what happened. And so now Samuel becomes the first prophet. Now you say, well, Moses was a prophet. Yes, he was. Others prophesied. Yes, they did. But Samuel, in a succession, in a line of prophets, he was the first prophet, and he would be the last judge. And so God raises this man up at a very, very special time, all because of the prayers of Hannah. Hannah's prayers was shaping the spiritual temperature of the whole nation. Amen. Think of that. One woman changed the atmosphere in a whole nation. And Samuel became such a man of God that the Bible says that not one of his words fell to the ground. In fact, when Samuel came to town, sometimes people were frightened. This man could win wars. This man could change the very weather. I mean, this was a mighty man of God. And he had a wonderful, wonderful ministry. But sadly, his two sons, Samuel's sons, sadly, they ended up like Eli's sons. Amazingly, isn't it? I mean, Samuel's such a godly man, and yet his sons grew up so ungodly, and they too were terrible. You know, when Samuel was old, he would bring his sons to help him, but the people came to Samuel and says, you're bringing your sons to help us, but they're terrible. They're awful. They're cheating us. They're frauding us. They're bad. And then they said, give us a king like the nations around us. We want a king like the other nations. We want to be like the world around us. When God's people wants to be like the world around us, we're in trouble, church, aren't we? And sadly, the more I live, the longer I live as a believer, sadly I can see that happening where God's people wants to live like the world around them and we're in trouble because of that. 
And Samuel was grieved. And it hurt him because he's thinking they're rejecting my ministry. God made me a prophet to this nation. They don't want me because we have a theocracy. We have God working through a man, God giving the orders. And they don't want that. They want a, a monarchy. They want a king to rule them. They don't want me to be involved. And he took this complaint to God. And God said, Samuel, no, no. They're not rejecting you, they're rejecting me. It's me they're rejecting, really. So he said, we'll give them a king. If that's what they want, we'll give them a king. You know, if we keep asking God for something he doesn't want to give us, if we keep asking and asking, we better look out because he just might give us it. And then we're going to be in really in trouble. And God says, I'll give them a king, but here's what he'll be like. And you can read this if you read the chapters following. And he listed what this king would do to them. And Samuel told them. He says, he'll take your sons and they'll run before his chariots. They'll be his guardsmen. He'll take your daughters and he'll make them into bakers and perfumers. He'll take a tenth of all your harvests. In fact, he's going to take some of your whole vineyards for himself. He'll take a tenth of all your livestock. He'll put taxes on you. You don't want a king like this. You know what they said after they heard all that? Give us a king like the other nations. So they got Saul. You read the story of Saul. It's not good. He did everything God said he would do. And it wasn't good. And he wasn't a good king and the people had an awful time. So what did Samuel do after that? They had rejected Samuel as a nation, as a people. You know what Samuel did? He's old now. He could have put his feet up and retired and says, well, that's it. I've had it. But you know what he did? He gathered young men around him. And he says, we're going to start a school of the prophets. And I'm going to teach you. I'm going to train you. And I'm going to show you the word of God. You see, a prophet in those days was not just a foreteller. They were forth tellers. They would speak forth what God was saying here and now. Yes, sometimes they prophesied future things. But often it was more foretelling than foretelling. And so he was going to teach them and show them the state of the nation and what they could say into the nation and to kings. And he raised up the skill of the prophets. And there was five places he raised up. And you remember that Elijah and Elisha, they carried on the skill of the prophets, but it was Samuel who started it. And so here's this. Dear woman, Hannah, in anguish of soul at the tabernacle, praying, priest thought she was drunk, but God heard her heartfelt cry, and he answered. And gave a man to that nation that was to take it right in from theocracy to monarchy. Monarchy. And... <coughs> Saul was raised up, then Saul was removed, the anointing was removed, and David, the greatest king that Israel has ever known, was raised up. And Samuel was there long enough to see David raised up as the greatest king of Israel before his day was done. Never underestimate the power of your prayers. Maybe you're praying for a grandson or a granddaughter 
that we are praying for a child. And that child could become a great stalwart in the kingdom of God. Maybe that child could grow up and touch a nation somewhere. Maybe could become a great missionary. Maybe could start a great organization. And you will get the credit because it was your prayers. God answered your prayers. God listened to your voice. Come with me to Acts chapter 10. what was called the Italian regiment a devout man one who feared God and all his household who gave alms generously to the people and prayed to God always I'll just stop there for a moment Cornelius a Roman centurion had been posted to Caesarea we don't know how long he was there but what we do know is during his spell there, he became influenced by Judaism, by the worship of Jehovah, and realized that all of the gods he ever had been brought up to believe in were nonsense. And now he's worshiping the one true and living God. Sure, he couldn't go into a synagogue, but he realized the Jewish God is the one true and living God, so I'm going to worship him. And he was devout. And he was generous in his almsgiving. And he prayed always. Wonderful. But he's not saved. And there's lots of people like Cornelius. They pray. They go to church. They're generous. They're good. But they're not saved. And so he's praying. Always. I don't know what he was praying, but my guess, he was seeking to know more about this great God. He was seeking to know more of his ways. And the more he prayed, and the more God listened, God was going to do something about this man's prayers. And so about the ninth hour of the day, he saw clearly in a vision an angel of God coming and saying to him, Cornelius. And when he observed him, he was afraid and said, what is it, Lord? He said to him, your prayers and your alms have come up for a memorial before God. Isn't that lovely? How many nice to think that your prayers and my prayers would come up before God as a memorial? Huh? That there would be memorable prayers. wonder how many of our prayers are memorable. Your prayers and your alms have come up for a memorial before God. Now send men to Joppa and send for Simon, whose surname is Peter. He is lodging with Simon a tanner, whose house is by the sea. He will tell you what you must do. When the angel who spoke to him had departed, Cornelius called two of his household servants and a devout soldier from among those who waited on him continually. So when he had explained all these things to them, he sent them to Joppa. The next day, as they went on their journey and drew near the city, Peter went up on the housetop to pray about the sixth hour. And when he became very hungry and wanted to eat, but while they were but while they made ready, he fell into a trance and saw heaven opened and an object like a great sheet 
bound at the four corners, descending to him, and let down to the earth. In it were all kinds of four-footed animals of the earth, wild beasts, creeping things, birds of the air. And a voice came to him, Rise, Peter, kill and eat. One writer says, isn't it interesting <laughs> how, how God relates to us? Oftentimes, in something that's really, really interesting us. What was really, really interesting, Peter, up on that roof? Food. He was hungry. He could smell what they were cooking down below. And he couldn't wait to get at it. But it wasn't ready. So while he was making ready, he thought, well, I better pray. And that's when God gave him this great vision. Rise, Peter, kill and eat. And Peter said, not so, Lord. Old F.B. Meyer, great old English preacher, the last century. F.B. Meyer, he said, you can say no and you can say Lord, but you can't say no, Lord. If he's Lord, you can't say no. You can only say yes, Lord. But Peter being Peter said, no, Lord, for I have never eaten anything common or unclean. And a voice spoke to him again the second time, what God has cleansed you must not call common. This was done three times, and the object was taken up into heaven again. Now while Peter wondered within himself what this vision which he had seen meant, Behold, the men who had been sent from Cornelius and had made inquiry for Simon's house and stood before the gate, and they called and asked whether Simon, whose surname was Peter, was lodging there. And while Peter thought about the vision, the Spirit said to him, Behold, three men are seeking you. Arise, therefore, go down and go with them, doubting nothing. The original means make no distinction, for I have sent them. And Peter went down to the man who had sent to him from Cornelius and said, Yes, I am he whom you seek. For what reason have you come? And they said, Cornelius, a centurion, a just man, one who fears God, has a good reputation among all the nation of the Jews, was divinely instructed by a holy angel to summon you to his house and to hear words from you. Then he invited them in and lodged them. And on the next day, Peter went with them and some brethren from Joppa accompanied him. The following day they entered Caesarea. Now Cornelius was waiting for them and had called together his relatives and close friends. And as Peter was coming in, Cornelius met him and fell down at his feet and worshipped him. But Peter lifted him up and said, Stand up, I myself am also a man. And as he talked with him, he went in and found many who had come together. Then he said to them, you know how unlawful it is for a Jewish man to keep company with or go to one of another nation. That's how big the separation was between the Jews and the Gentiles. For him to go and cross that threshold of this Roman soldier's door was a big, big thing. God had to send a vision to him, had to speak to him in a vision in order to get him to even to do this. But God has shown me that I should not call any man common or unclean. Therefore I came without objection as soon as I was sent for. I asked then, for what reason have you sent for me? So Cornelius said, four days ago I was fasting until this hour. The ninth hour I prayed in my house. And behold, a man stood before me in bright clothing and said, Cornelius, note this, your prayer has been heard. 
everything that's about to take place was a result of this man's prayer. Cornelius, your prayer has been heard. Your alms are remembered in the sight of God. Send therefore to Joppa, call Simon here, whose surname is Peter. He is lodging in the house of Simon a tanner by the sea. When he comes, he will speak to you. So I sent you to you immediately. You have done well to come. Now therefore we are all present before God to hear all the things commanded you by God. And Peter opened his mouth and said, In truth I perceive that God shows no partiality, but in every nation whoever fears him and works righteousness is accepted by him. The word which God sent to the children of Israel, preaching peace through Jesus Christ, he is Lord of all. And then he goes on and preaches all down a wonderful sermon telling him about Christ and what happened and so forth. And verse 43, to him all the prophets witness that through his name, whoever believes in him will receive remission of sins. And while Peter was still speaking these words, the Holy Spirit fell upon all those who heard the word. And those of the circumcision who believed were astonished as many as came with Peter because the gift of the Holy Spirit had been poured out on the Gentiles also for they heard them speak with tongues and magnify God. Peter answered, Can anyone forbid water that these should not be baptized who have received the Holy Spirit just as we have? And he commanded them to be baptized in the name of the Lord when they asked him, then they asked him to stay for a few days. Now, this prayer of this Roman soldier was to accomplish something absolutely amazing this is 10 years after Pentecost by the way and in those 10 years after the Lord sent to them you know you'd be witnesses to me in Jerusalem, Judea Samaria, the uttermost parts after 10 years they still only got as far as Samaria Philip went down had a revival in Samaria yes there was that one Ethiopian eunuch out in the desert where he met led him to Christ, he went on his way but by and large, the Gentiles were not being reached. And Peter would be the one who would open the door to the Gentiles for the gospel. Now, if you read chapter 9, you'll see the great <laughs> thing that happened to Saul of Tarsus on the road to Damascus. He's got saved, but he didn't go to Jerusalem. He takes off to Arabia for three years. He's with the Lord, got great revelation from Christ. He starts to preach. But before that, he was the man that God was calling. Paul was the man that God was calling to be the Gentile, the apostle to the Gentiles. But before he even started, Peter was the one who would open the door to the Gentiles. But listen to me. Cornelius' prayers was the key that opened the door to the Gentiles. Because this Roman centurion prayed and prayed continually and prayed as a devout man. God heard his prayer and now was the time for the gospel to go to the ends of the earth. And Peter would be the man that would open the door. Paul would be the man who would go through the door and have his great missions all over Asia Minor and even into Europe at Philippi. But it all began with this one man's prayers, a Roman centurion, no less. Never, ever underestimate the power of your prayers. 
It can change a life. It may even change a community. Who knows? It could change a nation. Somebody has got to do it. Somebody's got to impact somewhere. Why not you? Why not me? Why not us? Elijah was a man of like passions, such as we are. Yet he prayed, and it rained not for three and a half years. The fervent prayer of a righteous man avails much. A righteous woman avails much. Every one of us can pray. Don't need talent. Don't need gifting. Don't need cleverness. Just pray. And your prayer can make a difference. There's much more I could lead on into that, but I'm going to end with this. And we're hoping this technology works for us. And this is the power of one man's witness. One man's witness. Just one little man and his individual witness. And what it accomplished. A little man's called Mr. Gaynor in Australia. And the first time I heard this, I thought, wow, that is incredible. And it is. And you're going to think it's incredible too. So it'll take about eight minutes or so. There's nothing on the screen, so you just have to listen. But that's all right, isn't it? You can listen for eight minutes, can't you? Unless you've got the attention span of a frog or something like that. But you can listen for eight minutes, can't you? But I promise you, you'll be blessed when you hear it. So we're going to try and, and, and play this. This message is non-copyright. Duplication is encouraged. A number of years ago, in a Baptist church in Crystal Palace in southern London, the Sunday morning service was closing, and a stranger stood up at the back, raised his hand, he said, Excuse me, Pastor, can I share a little testimony? The pastor looked at his watch, he said, You've got three minutes. And this man proceeded. He said, I've just moved into this area. I used to live in another part of London. I came from Sydney in Australia. And just a few months back, I was visiting some relatives. And I was walking down George Street. You know where George Street is in Sydney? It runs from the business hub out to the rocks, the colonial area. And he said, a strange little white-haired man stepped out of a shop doorway, put a pamphlet in my hand, and he said, excuse me, sir, are you saved? If you die tonight, are you going to heaven? He said, I was astounded by those words. Nobody had ever told me that. I thanked him courteously, and all the way on British Airlines, back to Heathrow, this puzzled me. I called a friend who lived in this new area, where I'm living now, and thank God he was a Christian. He led me to Christ, and I'm a Christian, and I want a fellowship here. And Baptists love testimonies like it. Everyone applauded and welcomed him into the fellowship. That Baptist pastor flew to Adelaide in Australia the next week, and ten days later, in the middle of a three-day series in a Baptist church in Adelaide, a woman came to him for counseling, and he wanted to establish where she stood with Christ. And she said, I used to live in Sydney. And just a couple of months back, I was visiting friends in Sydney, doing some last-minute shopping down George Street, and a strange little white-haired man, elderly man, stepped out of a shop doorway, offered me a pamphlet, and said, excuse me, ma'am, are you saved? If you die tonight, are you going to heaven? She said, I was disturbed by those words. When I got back to Adelaide, I knew this Baptist church was on the next block from me, and I sought out the pastor, and he led me to Christ. So, sir, I'm telling you that I am a Christian. Now, this London pastor was now very puzzled. Twice, within a fortnight, he'd heard the same testimony. He then flew to preach in the Mount Pleasant Baptist Church in Perth. And when his teaching series was over, the senior elder 
of that church took him out for a meal. And he said, mate, how'd you get saved? He said, I grew up in this church from the age of 15 through Boys Brigade. Never made a commitment to Jesus, just hopped on the bandwagon like everybody else. And because of my business ability, grew up to a place of influence. I was on a business outing in Sydney just three years ago. And an obnoxious, spiteful little man stepped out of a stop shop doorway, offered me a religious pamphlet, cheap junk, and accosted me with a question. Excuse me, sir, are you saved? If you die tonight, are you going to heaven? He said, I tried to tell him I was a Baptist elder. He wouldn't listen to me. He said, I was seething with anger all the way home on Qantas to, to Perth. He said, I told my pastor, thinking he would sympathize with me, and my pastor agreed. He had been disturbed for years, knowing that I didn't have a relationship with Jesus, and he was right. And my pastor led me to Jesus just three years ago. Now, this London preacher flew back to the UK and was speaking at the Keswick Convention in the Lake District. And he threw in these three testimonies. At the close of his teaching session, four elderly pastors came up and said, we got saved between 25 and 35 years ago, respectively, through that little man on George Street giving us a tract and asking us that question. He then flew the following week to a similar Keswick Convention in the Caribbean, to missionaries. And he shared the testimonies. At the close of his teaching session, three missionaries came up and said, we got saved between 15 and 25 years ago, respectively, through that little man's testimony and asking us that same question on George Street in Sydney. Coming back to London, he stopped outside Atlanta, Georgia, to speak at a naval chaplain's convention. And when his three days of revving these naval chaplains up, over a thousand of them, in soul winning, the chaplain general took him out for a meal. And he said, how do you become a Christian? He said, well, it was miraculous. I was a rating on a United States battleship, and I lived a reprobate life. We were doing exercises in the South Pacific, and we docked in Sydney Harbor for replenishments. We hit King's Cross with a vengeance. I got blind drunk. I got on the wrong bus, got off in George Street, and... <laughs> As I got off the bus, I thought it was a ghost. This elderly, white-haired man jumped in front of me, pushed a pamphlet in my hand and said, Sailor, are you saved? If you die tonight, are you going to heaven? He said, the fear of God hit me immediately. I was shocked sober and ran back to the battleship, sought out the chaplain. The chaplain led me to Christ. And I soon began to prepare for the ministry under his guidance. And here I am in charge of over a thousand chaplains and we're bent on soul winning today. That London preacher... Six months later, flew to do a convention for 5,000 Indian missionaries in a remote corner of northeastern India. And at the end, the Indian missionary in charge, a humble little man, took him home to his humble little home for a simple meal. And he said, how did you, as a Hindu, come to Christ? He said, I was in a very privileged position. I worked for the Indian diplomatic mission. And I traveled the world. And I am so glad for the forgiveness of Christ and his blood covering my sin, because I'd be very embarrassed if people found out what I got into. He said, one bout of diplomatic service took me to Sydney. And I was doing some last-minute shopping laden with parcels of toys and clothing for my children, walking down George Street, and this courteous little white-haired man stepped out in front of me, offered me a pamphlet, and said, excuse me, sir, are you saved? If you die tonight, are you going to heaven? He said, I thanked him very much, but this disturbed me. I got back to my town, I sought out the Hindu priest, and he couldn't help me. But he gave me some advice. He said, just to satisfy your curious mind, nothing else, go and talk to the missionary in the mission house at the end of the road. And that was fatal advice. 
He said, because that day the missionary led me to Christ, I quit Hinduism immediately and then began to study for the ministry. I left the diplomatic service and here I am by God's grace in charge of all these missionaries and we are winning hundreds of thousands of people to Christ. Well, eight months later, that Crystal Palace Baptist pastor was ministering in Sydney, in Gymea, southern suburb of Sydney. And he said to the Baptist minister, do you know a little man, an elderly little man who witnesses and hands out tracts on George Street? And he said, I do. His name is Mr. Genor, G-E-N-O-R. But I don't think he does it anymore. He's too frail and elderly. The man said, I want to meet him. Two nights later, they went around to this little apartment, knocked on the door, and this tiny, frail little man opened the door. He sat them down, made them some tea, and he was so frail, he was slopping tea into the saucer as he shook. And as he sat with them, this London preacher told him all these accounts over the previous three years. This little man sat with tears running down his cheeks. He said, my story goes like this. He said, I was a rating on an Australian warship, and I lived a reprobate life, and in a crisis, I really hit the wall, and one of my colleagues, whom I gave literal hell, was there to help me. He led me to Jesus, and the change in my life was night to day in 24 hours, and I was so grateful to God. I promised God that I would share Jesus in a simple witness with at least 10 people a day. As God gave me strength. Sometimes I was ill, I couldn't do it, but I made up for it for other times. I wasn't paranoid about it, but I have done this for over 40 years. And in my retirement years, the best place was on George Street. There were hundreds of people. I got lots of rejections, but a lot of people courteously took the tracks. And he said, in 40 years of doing this, I've never heard of one single person coming to Jesus until today. Do you know, I would say that has to be commitment. That has to be just sheer gratitude and love for Jesus to do that, not hearing of any results. Margarita did a little count. That's 146,100 people. That simple little non-charismatic Baptist man influenced somehow to Jesus. And I believe what God was showing that Baptist minister was the tip of the tip of the tip of the tip of this iceberg. Goodness knows how many more had been arrested for Christ and were doing huge jobs out in the mission field. Mr. Genor died two weeks later. And can you imagine the reward he went home to in heaven? I doubt if his face would ever have appeared on Charisma magazine. I doubt if there would ever have been a write-up with a photograph in Billy Graham's Decision magazine, as beautiful as those magazines are. Nobody except a little group of Baptists in southern Sydney knew about Mr. Genor, but I'll tell you his name was famous in heaven. Heaven knew Mr. Genor, and you can imagine the welcome and the red carpet and the fanfare he went home to when he arrived in glory. It's amazing, isn't it? The influence that just one single person can make in this life. We're going to pray, we're going to break bread together. And those of you who are going to be serving and playing, if you could just come forward, please. Thank you for the gift of life. Amen. For so great salvation. Yes. Hallelujah. Thank you, Lord Jesus, that our names are in the Lamb's book of life. Amen. That you went to Calvary, you shed your own blood, and you cleansed us from all of our sins. We give you thanks today. We bless you for what you've done. We bless you for who you are. We bless you for changing us. Thank you for the life that you imparted. And Lord, help us to realize today that you have given us a purpose. There's a reason for our being.
We're here to make a difference. And Lord, you made a difference to us. You made us different to make a difference. And we thank you for that. Amen. So Lord, as we partake of the bread and the cup, remembering your life, remembering your death, remembering your resurrection, remembering all that was accomplished at the cross. Lord, we look back to that moment and history was changed forever. So we bless you and we return thanks to you for every mercy that you've given us. Thank you, Lord. In Jesus' name. Amen. Just take these emblems and hold them for a moment and just in quietness of your heart, just thank him for all that he means, for all that he's done. Amen. Thank you for listening to this podcast. You can also watch the Sermon of the Month video at youtube.com forward slash Moira Pentecostal or download the sermon video through our iTunes video podcast. For more information, visit us at www.mpc.org.uk. Thank you.